0: I see a crowd amassing, with placards waving, when I hear the sound of feet pounding the pavement, voices rising over each other, I feel an uncontrollable urge to be among them, to follow the momentum and capture the spirit that compels people to rise up. The adrenaline is addictive and it's been in my blood since I first picked up a camera. Welcome to the first episode of America Speaks. I'm Tish Lampert. For the past 17 years, my journey has taken me across America with my camera, taking the pulse of the nation. As a photojournalist, I take photographs that challenge us to think about how we use our voice. With the election of Donald Trump, I felt it was time to go beyond the impact of a photograph. This podcast series will be a forum to speak out, Each week, our conversation will go beyond the news to get a more intimate sense of those fighting on the front lines and to mobilize around solutions. Today, our conversation will spotlight the undocumented communities. In the first four and a half months of the Trump administration, over 65,000 people have been deported.
1: There is not a single nation in this hemisphere whose citizens have come here that was not interfered with militarily, economically, (laughs) culturally, in their countries where we have destroyed their cultures, we have robbed them of their resources, we have destroyed their political systems and installed horrible dictators, military coups and so forth, from from the tip of, of South America all the way to the Texas and California border. There is not a single country that the present immigrants have flowed from, that those people were not personally and directly affected by our illegal, immoral interference in their sovereign countries over the last 200 years.
0: since recording this conversation donald trump has decided to rescind daca causing great concern to all in the dreamer community as a result we have chosen to extend the length of this episode to impart as much information as possible i'm excited to be joined by legendary actor and activist martin sheen carla estrada the founder of undocu travelers and Justina Mora, the co-founder of UndocuMedia. Carla, why don't you start?
2: Yes, my name is Carla, and I am from Mexico. I was born in Mexico City, but I grew up sort of in Cuernavaca, Morelos. I came to the country when I was five years old. So I do not have recollection of Mexico as much as my fellow friends. I have a younger brother. His name is Angel. He came to the country when he was nine months old. We've been here in the United States since then. I grew up in this country. I have my friends here, my family, my father, my mother. Uh, I went to high school here, and like any other teenager, I wanted to go to college, and that turned out very difficult once I kind of understood what it meant to be undocumented. That was very hard for me as a 16, 17-year-old. I went through a very, very difficult time. I was in with my friends, with the United States, (laughs) with the politicians, and a brief moment, I was even angry at my parents for bringing this burden upon me.
1: Your education background is really extraordinary. Would you share that, please?
2: Yes, of course. When I graduated from high school, <laughs> I wanted to go to USC, but circumstances didn't let me. So I enrolled to Mount San Antonio College, and then I transferred to UCLA. I majored in biological anthropology and evolutionary biology, <laughs> and then very, very different with what I want to do with my life nowadays. But I uh, I graduate from that and nowadays I'm studying for the LSAT so I can be an attorney in the future but I specifically want to concentrate
0: in human rights and international law. Justino, can you tell us a little bit about your background?
3: So I was born in Mexico City. I grew up there with my two siblings, my mom and my father, and we lived in extreme poverty. So I remember everything very clearly up to the point when I was 11 years old when we came to the U.S. And it wasn't a choice that it was ours. I, th- I think it was definitely something that my mom was forced to do, not only because of extreme poverty, but also because of domestic violence. So my father, who was a very abusive, uh, aggressive person, and at one point my mom realized, if I want to give my children a better life, I have to be able to find them a better opportunities. So in, in 2000, my mom decided to make that decision. And we came over to the U.S. Uh, that same summer. Had family members here in the U.S., so that was really helpful, given the fact that they knew the system, they knew how to, you know, make a living and, you know, take advantage of the opportunities here. But originally, my mom, she didn't want to come to the U.S. She wanted to move to Jalisco, where, you know, her parents were born. But my family members here in the U.S. told her, you um, know, I think it would be wise to come over to the U.S., and they were right, because at one point, my father told my mom, if you ever run away from me, I'm going to find all of you, and then I'm going to kill you. So that was uh, my mom's uh, decision, and it was a very heroic decision, one that literally saved their lives. So we came over in the summer of 2000, and I knew from, you know, since day one that I was going to be undocumented and that I was going to carry uh, certain limitations. Uh, So once we crossed the border through Ciudad Juarez into El Paso, Texas, we came over to L.A., where we, you know, met, you know, my other family members. And um, I was 11, my sister was 12, and my brother was 10. Uh, so initially, it was really difficult to adjust to everything because um, back in Mexico, my two siblings and I we were the best students in our school. Uh, so coming over to the U.S. not knowing the language was definitely a huge setback. But one thing that my mom told us, since you know, since I can remember, she said education is the key to success. Um, you know, keep moving forward, don't give up. Hard work is going to get you to many different places. So that's what we ended up doing. Um, you know, I went through. Middle school, high school, really difficult times. Knowing that as an undocumented person, we couldn't do much, um, and by that I mean uh, we were restricted in, you know, just going to school, going back home, uh, doing homework, then repeat the same thing the following day, because any exposure to authorities would potentially put us at risk of deportation. And that's something that we saw in the news quite frequently. People, you know, hearing reports of people getting detained at their homes and then getting deported. So. That was her greatest fear when I was growing up here in the U.S., um, not knowing whether going back home mm-hmm. meant that I wouldn't be able to see my mom again or my, my one of my siblings. So that was something that I grew up with since I can remember and, you know, went through the educational system, um, always hearing, you know, teachers and administrators say, if you do your best, if you're one of the best students, you're going to be able to get so many opportunities and you're going to be able to get ahead. So that was my thinking, so I thought I'm going to do my best and I did everything, AP classes, I was the captain of the cross-country track and field teams, I was working part-time on the weekends from like 5 a.m. to 6 p.m., earning like $100 for both days. I took all the AP classes, graduated in the top 5% of my class, and then by then I realized, wow, like I can't go to my dream school, I can't study aerospace engineering. I'm not a U.S. citizen and only citizens can go into that field. And then second of all, I don't have the financial means to pay for my education. So that's when I decided to go to community college, that's where I met Carla at Mount San Antonio College, and that's where I discovered my passion for fighting for what's right. At that point I realized that I couldn't afford to stay on the sidelines and not do anything. So I realized I had to get involved because this is about my rights, this is about my community, this is about my own dignity. So that led me to get involved into many different immigrant rights organizations, not only at the local level, but also the state level and also federal levels. And I was able to work on many different campaigns, one of them including the California Dream Act, which eventually gave undocumented students here in the state of California the ability to uh, get state financial aid. And that's how I was able to go back to UCLA and continue studying computer science and political science. And then in 2012, I was also involved in the fight to pressure the Obama administration to grant undocumented youth the ability to get a work permit uh, known as DACA. So that's what we currently have, which is protecting us from deportation. I've been using my passion for not only immigrant rights, but also technology to create tools to bring about change. And that's where I you know, also met Ivan Seja, who couldn't be here today. He is the other co-founder of Undocumedia. Undocumedia is a non-profit immigrant rights organization, and we leverage the power of social media to bring about change, get young people informed and educated about what's going on in the world, and we also get them to take action. And we have become, today one of the largest and most influential immigrant write platforms in in the country.
0: So inspiring. I mean, it comes to mind something Martin has been known to say, Mm. that he's an actor to make a living, but he is an activist to survive. I think we're all in agreement that we are living in a time where we're not only inspired Mm. by watching and learning from you, And of course, I have been for years inspired and learning from Martin's stand on things that maybe are not so easy. Mm. It takes a lot of commitment Mm. and a lot of uh, not just time, but beyond the dedication, you really have to show up for it. (laughs) And that's tiring and it's frustrating. And so I'm now actually looking at the resistance today. Because it is a national resistance. It's not just in terms of the subject of immigration on all topics. And I'd like to talk to that a little bit, because I am curious how we think the resistance is doing. So, Martin, what do you think?
1: Well, I think that the recent events, you know, the political change in climate in the country particularly with the last election, and not just of the president, but the Senate and House as well, and all of the governorships and many of the state houses. It was a great wake-up call to all of us who are still in the majority. Remember, Mrs. Clinton won by three million votes. So, I think that we can take a great deal of, uh, you know, satisfaction from what's happened and be nourished by it. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm an old product of the 60s. I'm old enough to go back to the civil rights fight and the uh, war in Vietnam. We came out of the 60s having lost uh, three of our heroes, you know where the bullet was more effective than the ballot. So we had to deal with that. But we came out with a very sober kind of focus, and that was that if you believed in anything of value, it was going to cost you something. Otherwise, you're left to question its value. So I've always been aware of the severe cost for progressive thinking, for social justice activism. It's going to cost you something. The other part of it is that you cannot expect to succeed in the sense that our culture acknowledges of success. There is no success except that you're doing it. Mm -hmm. So when we came out of the 60s we knew that the only causes worth fighting for were lost causes and the only weapon was Mm nonviolence, and that still stands today. And it has to be a personal fight because if it's not personal it's impersonal. If it's impersonal who the hell cares? And what is happening today and particularly in this issue of immigration because I'm close to it in my family, Mm -hmm. My father, who came to this country at the age of 16 with his two-year older brother in 1914 in a uh, port of New York, were denied entry because there was a quarantine on Spaniards uh, because of the Spanish-American War, which was fought years earlier, a decade earlier, in fact. And my father was born on the day that the United States declared war on Spain, so he was <laughs> dealing—he was dealing with this crap from the moment he, he, he you know, he, he dropped on the floor. So he was denied entry, he and his brother Alfonso, and they got on the next boat to Cuba. And he, he stayed in Cuba and worked for three years in the sugarcane fields, and he came in through Miami as a Cubano. <laughs> so, you know, uh, Hispanics were kind of okay, but Spaniards, no. <laughs> he got that. You know. uh, but, you know, I wanted to just mention how severe this issue is and how, how it touches us. And it has not to do with law. It has not to do with uh, custom or culture. It has to do with our humanity. And I relay it to the Holocaust. In no uncertain terms, it is the Holocaust. There are an equal number of lives at stake. And if we don't understand how many lives are at stake, we don't understand the severity of the situation. I visited Auschwitz some... Long maybe 15 years ago, I was doing a film in Europe and I had a friend in Berlin who asked us to visit and while we were in Berlin he said that he would like to go to the, visit the Holocaust and would I go? I said, of course, and we went. And as I entered Auschwitz, there are two uh, parts to the camp. There was one, the, the red brick buildings you often see where the workers lived and, and then there were the ovens where people were gassed and burned about a, a mile and a half away. And as I was touring Auschwitz, and seeing those exhibits and trying to imagine what it must have been like to be an inmate here in this circumstance. When I left, all I could focus on is what it must have been like to have been a guard in that camp. We are the guards That's now.
0: Right. Bear witness. We
1: are the SS, we are the Kapos, we are controlling. Here in the United States alone, 11 million lives. That's what's at stake. And if we separate ourselves, any measure of humanity from those people, then we do not understand the situation. That's how severe it is. And if we think any differently, if we think that someone's going to come from another area and solve this problem, it's not going to happen. There may be some solution. You talked earlier, uh, Carla, about how complex the immigration law is and the culture is and so forth. All that is is certainly true and it may take generations before there is a fair and a just uh, immigration uh, uh, situation here. Until then, we are left with our humanity. That is it nothing else. Mm -hmm. If we are not moved, if we are not motivated by our humanity and that alone, then we have no humanity. We have given up our humanity for our citizenship, Mm -hmm. which devaluates our citizenship. I once heard Lyndon Johnson say that we belong to a very exclusive club and the dues were very high. The club is called the United States of America and the dues are citizenship's responsibility and that's what's at stake here. We cannot separate our citizenship from our hearts, our humanity. I think the greatest heroes are sitting here among us who've come out of the DACA situation and risked your lives, basically. And this is the measure of courage that is necessary for all of us. We have to stand together and we have to be willing to accept the uh, consequence. Mm -hmm. And if we do not, then we have to be willing to accept the consequences of the destruction of our own
0: souls. I just find myself baffled at what happens to people who are then elected, who have the power to take their humanity and actually help broader humanity, so that there is a belief system that the people we are actually electing will serve us from a human and compassionate perspective. What's happened to that here?
1: Well, I think that what I see it's going down is that most of these politicians are not public servants. They are politicians. Uh, they should be public servants first. They should put their humanity and humanity of others. But most of them just want to be on the side that's winning. Mm-hmm. They don't give a damn if it's Republican or Democrat. Right now it's Republican. They want to be on the side that's winning. And that's why you have so many people tossing their souls in the toilet following this madness that Trump has brought in. There's this insatiable desire to be on the side that's winning. They call it patriotism. It's bullshit. It's denying your own humanity. There was a town hall meeting, some congressman just voted for the new repeal on Obamacare. And these constituents were furious. Just on the news the other day, he's being filmed by a smartphone. And somebody said, how could you possibly have voted for this and know what the hell you're doing to us? And he said, oh, come on, I know the situation. No one has ever died from lack of health care.
0: See, so I think our, our standards are mm. sinking as a society. Exactly, you yeah, know, I mean, And yeah. one thing that Martin brought up was this notion of where we are now drawing the line on mm-hmm. humanity. Let's talk about DACA, what Obama created.
1: Extraordinary part of his legacy. Yes. Obama. Yeah. And I think we're only realizing how much he did by what these people are destroying.
0: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Every day there's something new. What I would like to <laughs> find out. When you first signed up for DACA mm-hmm. and you gave the government your specific information yeah. of how to find you, what did you feel? You were coming out of the shadows.
3: So that's a really good question. And before I answer this question, uh, I guess there's an element of trust, right? Applying, giving our personal information to a government that has the power to separate our families. So when it comes to DACA, there was definitely a lack of trust between the immigrant community and the Obama administration primarily because of the fact that, by then, Obama had deported more people than any other president in US history. True. So for us, when we were fighting for DACA, we realized by 2010 that it was gonna be very difficult to get an immigration reform bill passed. The Republicans were obstructing and the Democrats were taking their time, and Obama was not really focused on that issue. So when we fought for DACA, it was something that it was pushed mostly by undocumented youth. We said, it's time to bring about a change, we need to make sure that the administration changes. So that began with several of our friends and ourselves taking that into our hands and telling the administration, you do have the power to make that change, to sign an executive order and extend some sort of protection to undocumented youth. And Obama denied having that power many times publicly. And we kept on pressuring until you know, several of our friends did uh, civil disobedience actions in many of his campaign offices across the country in 2012 when he was running for reelection so he felt the pressure to do something about it because his uh, rankings were dropping significantly within the immigrant latino community so they knew that he, he could lose the re-election if he didn't do anything about it so our strategy was to put a lot of pressure on his reelection. when it came to the issue of trust applying to daca we had all of that into consideration because there's two other programs that at that point in time they were still in effect 287g and secure communities which allow local police officials to collaborate with ICE to detain and deport immigrants. So we knew that the Obama administration had given ample authority to expand those programs and take them to every part of the country. So when DACA passed, our concern was, if we submit our information to them, what's going to protect us and our families from deportation? What's going to stop DHS from potentially using secure communities into 87G? To get that information out and then go after our loved ones. So that was one of the biggest obstacles that we had to overcome the lack of trust between the Obama administration and the immigrant community. I was one of the first ones to uh, apply and get granted DACA. I was the 19th person in the whole US. First people that applied, they didn't want to come out because they didn't want to expose themselves. So myself, Ivan, uh, he was later approved, I think in October. And when were you, when were you approved? August. August. You know, we ended up uh, coming out and we, we told the media, it's real, this is the work permit. And our goal was to get as many people as possible to apply for DACA because we thought if we reach a critical mass of people that, re- that apply for the program, so we'll get as many people as we can to apply, they'll get granted DACA and they're gonna be able to get those jobs, be able to become more integrated into society. It's going to be very difficult to kick them out of the country. And we realize once we do that, those DACA beneficiaries, is gonna be up to them to stand up for the rest of the undocumented community because when we talk about DACA, there's also the issue of the good immigrant versus the bad immigrant narrative. And that's something that we're really careful when we speak to the media because my mom can't benefit from DACA. Like, she should be able to benefit from a program like this. Because if it weren't for her, I wouldn't be here today. But she saved my life. So that's something that we also challenge the media. To talk about DACA, but to also think about our parents. The people who sacrificed so much so that we could have it better.
0: Can I just broaden yes. that just yeah. a bit? So do we have any idea how many originally signed up for DACA? So 900
1: and 20-
3: and some... Yeah, so in the beginning, I think from August 15th when the application came out to the end of that year 2012, I think no more than 6,000. It was very few people. And at the moment, I think, what is it, 1.2 million are eligible for and only...
0: 900,000.
3: 970,000.
0: And I do want to talk about the eligibility program today, but I want to find out how all three of your families, Yvonne, Mm Justina, and Carla, felt After you released Mm -hmm. your information and they were at risk.
1: they know you were going to come out? Publicly? Yeah.
2: No. Um, When I started doing activist work and coming out to the media with my story, my parents were very vividly against it actually they kind of still are because they always tell me you shouldn't do those things you're just exposing yourself you're just putting yourself in danger for nothing what are you doing when i go to protest and i wear my i'm undocumented shirt or i'm an immigrant they scold me like like you know but when daca came out hosting applied i actually like afterwards because i was like oh he can do it you know like i can do <laughs> it too yeah. so so yeah. he you know so i did it so when i applied for daca My parents wanted me to go to a lawyer and etc. And I refused because I don't know, a a lot of us feel this mistrust with institutions as a whole. Mm -hmm. So I was like, no, I'm gonna do it by myself. And I know exactly what I put. So if they ever come for me and something or or against my family, I know exactly what I put and I can defend myself. So when I applied for DACA, I did not know what was going to happen. In the future, are they going to come for us? Are they going to come for my parents? And curiously, I was not as worried about my safety, but I was more worried about my mom and dad and my brother. I'm like, oh oh man, I actually put the information of my family there. I always had this mentality that like, oh, anything can, can happen to me. I can take care of myself. But my parents, like, you know, and I was terrified when I applied it. But honestly, when I did, I was like, there's nothing else to lose. I have nothing to lose right now might as well go for it. Because my mentality was that my parents came to this country to help me, they aspired for me to have a better life than they had in Mexico. They wanted me to have a career, they wanted me to be better than them when i started i was like 18 19 years old i should have been i don't know partying or doing something (laughs) but i i wasn't i was working uh, because i had a job and i went to school and then i did like activism work i had no time so i was like no i'm going to do this we used to study all day and then do our activism work and we barely had time to ourselves i used to sleep how many hours a day four hours a day if this opportunity that my own people fought for that we fought for with our sweat we miss so many family gatherings. Yeah. We miss holidays. And we deserve this because we fought for it.
0: And you also had that voice that you were able to lead your community. That's something that I was able to see on May Day. I didn't see either one of you personally, yeah. but I saw <laughs> a lot from Undocumedia yeah. downtown.
3: We And a lot. <laughs> what was
0: amazing. And I want to have all of you yeah. think about what this mentality is that's lurking in terms of of your status and then help me understand a little bit about where the application process is for all of those that didn't sign up perhaps a lot weren't in that much of a rush because they thought that hillary would win Mm -hmm. and that trump wouldn't and now what are they screwed
3: that is a very good question uh when it comes to the application process i think it was, yeah, definitely different under Obama. We knew that it was part of his legacy, something that he, he wanted to protect. So we felt, I guess, pretty comfortable to not only get DACA, but, I, you know, I think we also saw it in the movement. Many ended up, you know, definitely taking advantage. There's nothing wrong with it. And then, you know, uh, getting their jobs and disconnecting from the whole movement. Many of them were expecting Hillary to win. But the uh, election of Trump, I think, woke many people up and to, I guess, be reminded that DACA is not permanent, that is only temporary and can be taken away at any point in time. So when it comes to the application process, people who have never applied for DACA, initially we were telling them don't apply because we don't know what Trump is going to do in the first couple of days of his administration. In the event that he takes it away, he could give you know, DHS the ability to go into those applications, get people's personal information, then go after them with immigration agents. So for the first couple of months, I remember telling people if you haven't applied for DACA, don't apply because you might expose your personal information for those that already applied, that were in the process of seeing their DACA expired. We told them, go ahead and you know renew your application. You know, there's nothing else that we can do. You, they already have your information, just might as well, and take advantage of the, of the process. The worst thing that can happen is if you submit your renewal application is lose of $465. Um, at this point it's $495 that it takes to submit the renewal and get approved.
0: Can they deny you, though?
3: Yes. So that gives the yeah.
1: program legitimacy. Correct. Oh, yes. Yes. If they can deny uh, you, it's yes. saying, well, uh-huh.
3: if it didn't have any legitimacy, mm-hmm. who the hell cares? Correct.
1: Right.
3: The fascinating right. thing is that we're now hearing that more right now yeah. than under Obama. So under Obama, there were uh, really easy cases. People that, you know, they met the requirements and were approved almost right away. Um, and in the last couple of days, we've been hearing you know, reports from other immigrant rights organizations uh, they're also seeing the same thing. Then more more people are getting rejected. They're taking forever to approve the applications, and you know fewer and fewer people are getting approved, which shows the change in direction mm-hmm. that USA is taking under Trump. So you know, yes, he might not want to take it away, but they can definitely deny people. So he's using
0: getting... it as a slogan, and he's using exactly. DACA as a pawn. So yes. what can we do?
3: Uh, to, legally, there's question. not much
0: to do. Yeah. At, um, there's at a lot morally DACA, that we yeah.
1: have to do. Yeah. I think that's the issue. Yes. That's really uh-huh. the thing yeah. that, that we have to find within ourselves the most powerful part of ourselves, yeah. which is our vulnerability. Yeah. Where are we most vulnerable? What are we susceptible to? And it's basically our humanity. It's a moral frame of reference, and if it's not that, then it has no meaning.
0: You know, I've covered the Tea Party a Mm -hmm. lot. I covered the first Koch Brothers fundraiser in Scottsdale. You look at Christian values, and you look at this moral platform of family values, Mm -hmm. and the patriots, and all of this which goes on with the woman's right to choose, which we all have... I just asked
1: those people one question. Is nonviolence a family
0: value? And deportation is violent. Uh uh, Uh Any kind of
1: inhumane treatment towards anyone is a violent act, even the thought itself. And when you speak about it, you give other people voice and a platform for their actions. You know, a guy was thrown off a plane the other day complaining about the Japanese, or foreigners. He was (laughs) on the Japanese Airlines. We are so damn nutty We have with lost this our hopelessly moral compass. In false patriotism. Yeah. It's just an excuse to be bully. This administration has given all these lunatics free reign to act on their stupid yes. arrogance. And yeah. nothing has changed with this administration from the beginning. And it won't change to the end. They are a reflection that arrogance is ignorance matured.
0: Really They've proven
1: that old adage.
0: Do they have any accountability inside these deportation systems? Are there cameras? Are there any kind of reliable witnessing to the treatment that's going on there?
2: No. (laughs) Um, um, There are security cameras, but they're usually not used for defense mechanisms Mm -hmm. when it comes to violation of rights of the inmate. That, That doesn't really happen. When we do investigative projects in regards to abuse, from inside the detention center, it was usually via like emails and etc. Mm-hmm. But there's actually no accountability inside the detention center. There is terrible human rights abuse. Sadly, there's no way to actually prove it. But in terms of getting like video or photographs of the abuse inside the detention center, it's nearly impossible. And, uh, and there's no uh,
0: laws or anything protecting the individuals. They the- are
1: uh, quasi protected by. The Constitution. Because they are in the custody of federal officers.
2: But it's disregarded. It's totally disregarded. In many respects,
1: they're not really federal officials, uh, trained federal personnel that are looking after them. A lot of them are jobbed out like a lot of our prisons are oh, run right, by private, private institutions so that that's the same here money. they're right. making a lot of dough yeah. the more people they get in there the more beds and cells they fill yeah. for well example, cells are, for the uh, detention prison.
2: center's geo is oh. the biggest private owner and one of my family members was in Adelanto detention center in adelanto detention center there has been a lot of suicides you're um, talking about
1: delano here in california
2: adelanto yeah Yeah, yeah. my brother was actually in Adelanto for a couple months. And the times that he was in Adelanto, four men hang themselves because of the inhumane um, conditions of Adelanto. In despair. Uh, Yes, my brother says that he was forced to clean his toilet with his toothpaste and a toothbrush. Where um, is he now? He actually um, got a voluntary departure now. He's in Mexico. Right now, he's in Mexico. Uh,
1: Is he a dreamer? Did he come out?
2: He, He had DACA, yes unfortunately, this country has terrible mental health help for its own citizens and lack a look, of it, lack mm-hmm. of it. Yeah. I mean there's there are resources, but they're very confusing to get even for citizens and for an undocumented individual, it's even harder so unfortunately, mm-hmm. uh, my brother went through mental health issues and then because of the lack of help that that was provided um he succumbed to to easy relief which is you know narcotic and because like of the narcotics and his mental health issues he made a lot of mistakes things like he probably wouldn't have done it he had the help that he needed and uh, you don't know what they're not they were not even mistakes because um he didn't know what he was doing most of the time he just wanted relief from his issues he was
1: in despair. yeah because doctor does not
2: grant you even under Obamacare, okay. you yeah. could not Apply for Obamacare. No. Oh, I didn't that. So, and though he had the privilege of having DACA, it did not save him from mental health issues and from drugs. And because of that, he got he got stuck in a detention center. He suffered a lot. He saw a lot of people get abused. Himself, he got abused. Mm-hmm. And there was a point where my brother kind of gave up. He says, "You know what? This is too much for me. I can't take it anymore. I can't see people suffer anymore. I would rather just go back. I don't care." And he he got fed up. Now now in Mexico
0: what is so remarkable to me is that all he needed was somebody inside the system to care
2: yes Uh, this comes with my original point in the beginning of of this podcast we've always knew that we were undocumented but we did not know how it was going to be when we reach adulthood Mm -hmm. when he turned 16 years old he was like okay I'm gonna go to the army But by that time, I was already kind of with the knowledge that he couldn't. I believe that's one of the reasons why his issues became more prominent because he got into a very massive depression because that was his dream. He used to go to the gym and he used to do all these things preparing for the big day. And as an older sister, I obviously want my brother to do what he wants and be his best self and whatever passion that he has. But then I had to break my, my brother's heart and tell him you can't do this me, his own sister, when I'm supposed to be encouraging him and telling him to go for it, but there was no way. You know, this is the thing that people don't understand. There's this terrible, terrible divide within the country and even within our own community, undocumented community of the good immigrant versus the bad immigrant. My brother committed petty theft so he can sell it and get drugs. And someone that hears that, they say, well, he committed a crime. He shouldn't have done it. He's deported, well, he, he brought it upon himself, you know, it's, it's his fault. He's a criminal. Well, but what made him a criminal? Right. The lack of, of help from his mental problem, his depression, his anxiety. I'm like, what caused that? He wanted to go to the army and this country broke his heart. They didn't let him. Even though he loved this country, he wanted to serve this country, wanted he wanted to give his life for this country. If they would have given him the opportunity, he probably would have been in the army. He probably not would have had major mental health breakdown. He probably would've never done drugs. Mm -hmm. And he probably been right now surrounded by his friends and family. The bad immigrant narrative has to stop because you're not looking at the big picture. Like if a DACA recipient, let's say, has a a son and a daughter and a wife, and then they go into a supermarket and steal like a bottle of milk and and they get caught, that's petty theft, that's um, CMIAT offense, which means it's a breach of moral turpitude, which makes you a
0: deportable. What what caused that? What caused that a crime? Mm-hmm. And when we look at this problem of immigration, the one issue is it is broken down into good and bad.
1: What is still astonishing to me is, is the reality of why mm-hmm. there are so many uh, immigrants here, undocumented, so-called. There is not a single nation in this hemisphere whose citizens have come here that was not interfered with militarily, economically, culturally in their countries where we have destroyed their cultures, we have robbed them of their resources, we have destroyed their political systems and installed horrible dictators, military coups and so forth from from the tip of, of South America all the way to the Texas and California border. There is not a single Country that the present immigrants have flowed from—that those people were not personally and directly affected by our illegal, immoral interference in their sovereign countries over the last 200 years in this hemisphere. So
0: we've created. We problem. created
1: it, yeah. and the only place I have seen this clearly uh, reflected and exposed is a documentary done by Rory Kennedy on this immigration issue. I forget what the name of the show Mm -hmm. was, but look up Rory Kennedy's, one of her documentaries. It is brilliantly done with figures and numbers and countries and years of immigration and where it came from and where they are and why. Mm -hmm. And that's a thing that the majority of this nation, uh, who tried to define what patriotism is, who don't have a clue what suffering is, Mm -hmm.
0: And who so have many, never
1: ever earned?
0: That's right. Uh, they've never uh, seen the hardship, the suffering.
1: Or they've the, never had to pay a price for their no. citizenship, and yet that we we allow them, people like Trump, to define what mm-hmm. patriotism is mm-hmm. at the expense of our humanity.
0: At the expense of that's what's of at stake.
1: Yeah. It's the soul of this nation that's at stake, and we're going to find out the price we're willing to pay for it with this administration.
0: And it has turned yeah. us on our ear. It's
1: turned us yeah. on yeah. each other. Yeah. Rather than a leadership... You know, I, I often think, I have, in my lifetime, we've seen so many extraordinary people surface who refuse to accept the common thread of what it means to be successful and to have uh, ruled when they got to the top of the heap in what amounted to a vengeful uh, recrimination. And the, the greatest example of that in the last century was... Uh, in South Africa, with Nelson Mandela, yes, yeah. how yeah. this man was uh, imprisoned and fought for so long for his freedom and for his country, and he became president. Mm. He only accepted mm. one term, which is so unusual on that continent. That is so <laughs> unusual. <laughs> but that. that he did not exhibit any vengeance. On the contrary, yeah. he was the Abraham Lincoln of South Africa. You know, he tried to bind up the wounds with charity for all. That was his uh, legacy. And w- where are the Nelson Mandelas today? Exactly. Mm-hmm. I mean,
0: you know, I think that we come from an era we we were comforted mm-hmm. by JFK, Martin Luther King, Bobby Kennedy. Moreover, you know, just to understand this human responsibility.
2: Yeah. Comment about where are the Nelson Mandelas right now? I see them all the time yes, you do, do. You I know. do like yeah. I'm surrounded by them Justino, Ivan, and Andy, the one who introduced me to fight for our civil rights Imelda Placencia. shout out to her she's an amazing woman Jared, yeah. Maria Rodriguez, those are our fellow advocates our fellow organizers my friends my colleagues and the people that I lean on when I'm, like, in tremendous Your trouble. Work
3: that comes to mind.
2: People that I admire greatly. Those are the Nelson Mandelas in my mind.
3: When Also, when I think about, you know, people like them, Martin Luther King, Nelson Mandela, Rosa Parks, I think we put them really high on a pedestal, and I think that's okay. But at the same time, by doing that, we separate ourselves from, I guess, reaching that goal ourselves, right? We think of them, oh, they're really high, that I can't really reach that I guess you know the top of that mountain and I think the moment we started thinking and seeing our colleagues as people that can eventually be like them I think that's when we realized we also have the power to bring about change mm-hmm. because when I think about who is in my life the person that has shown the power of nonviolence is my mom mm-hmm. someone who has sacrificed so much and never resorted to any violent means to you know make a huge difference in our lives
1: one of the most impressive books that I've read in my life mm-hmm. in her. A few of them, but one that stays with me, and I read it, I reread it every now yeah. and then. There's been four different editions. <laughs> it was Victor Frankel's uh, um, "Man's Search for Meaning." Victor Frankel oh, was yes. a therapist who was arrested in uh, uh, in Austria and on the street, and yeah. was we sent to Auschwitz, and he survived Auschwitz. And he talks in his books about um, we must be made worthy of our suffering. And it is only the people who have suffered, as Nelson Mandela and Bobby Kennedy and Reverend King and Cesar Chavez yeah. and all the Rosa Parks and yeah. all of the people that have made a difference in our lives, in every one of our lives, they have been made worthy of their suffering. Hmm. And I mean, that's a, that's a very it's un- a unbelievable, unbelievable. it's hard to talk about hmm. that concept. You have been made worthy of your suffering. And we have yet to achieve that because we have not been called to suffer in that way. And so you are an inspiration to us. And, you and are. you're right. When I said, where are the Nelson Mandela's, there are two of them sitting here. So.
0: <laughs> I want to thank Martin Sheen, Justino Mora, and Carla Estrada for this very inspired conversation today. And those listening, please come back for part two of our conversation on immigration. Carla and Justino can you please tell our listeners where they can find out more information about your organizations and how they can get involved? On um, if
2: anyone wants to go, it's www.undocutravelers.org. And it's spelled U-N-D-O-C-U-T-R-A-V-E-L-E-R-S. I also have a Facebook page on DocuTravelers, so people can reach me through that. And um, also Instagram. Um, si sí, uh, si ustedes quisieran preguntar algún uh, algo sobre una situación legal o tienen son están curiosos sobre algún proceso o solo pregunta para su familia, sus hermanos, el que el quien sea, pueden uh, contactarme a mí a uh, UndocuTravelers, Travelers que es U N D O C U T R A V E L E R S eso un Travelers y este por medio de Instagram Facebook es, es, es más fácil se me hace que tal vez pero también me lo me pueden mandar un correo electrónico a untalkutravelers este y por si tienen alguna duda pregunta y si ustedes necesitan um, este consejo legal entonces yo les puedo ayudar a contactar a la persona apropiada para eso y también para contestar cualquier duda o pregunta simple
4: so people can go ahead and visit either www.undocumedia.org or check out our handle, Undocumedia, across Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And then uh, we're really are responsive to any form messaging across any of those.
3: And just, uh, that is spelled U-N-D-O-C-U-M-E-D-I-A. And also feel free to send us an email at askundocumedia at gmail.com.
4: Uh, y si alguien quiere conectarse con nosotros, un Ducomedia, una organización que aboga por los derechos de los inmigrantes, puede uh, mandarnos un mensaje, ya sea de apoyo, ya sea de un caso que ustedes están batallando de solucionar. Podemos tal vez ayudarlos y si no, uh, compartir con ustedes otros recursos. Uh, nuestro correo electrónico es uh, askundocumentmedia at gmail.com. A-S-K- and
0: remember, if you have protested for anything in the last 17 years, you may very well be in my book, America Speaks please go to my website, tishlampert.org. That's www.tishlampert.org, where you can find an archive of this episode. And please sign up for our newsletter. This podcast series would not be possible without my team. I want to thank James Koblenz, Borja Sow, Alexa Koblenz, and Amy Kessler. Remember, America Speaks believes every one of us has a story. And a
2: voice.
0: The revolution will be